Dr. Frank Esper of the Center for Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Cleveland Clinic said in the 1950s, getting the measles was so common in the United States that it was a rite of passage of sorts. You had complete communities that were susceptible to the measles with it spreading throughout everybody, Esperto Healthline. For context, think of how today everyone gets the common cold. You know, you're going to get sick and we shrug our shoulders about the common cold. However, the big difference is with the common cold, you don't get all these complications. For children who had more serious complications, once infection gets into your blood, once it goes up into your brain and causes brain swelling, once you got encephalitis, that is when it was serious. That is one of the reasons why measles was one of the first viruses targeted for eradication. Article by Brian Mastroianni for Healthline, March 6, 2019. back to the podcast and I hope you had a happy new year. I had my vacation and my booster shot and now things are a little bit more stable. Let's begin with what I will call season two, which focuses more or less on measles and the birth of the modern anti-vaccine movement. This subject was supposed to be a little tangent, but as I read up more on measles and how the anti-vaccination networks that exist today essentially began due to measles and the MMR vaccine, one story became two, then three, and more. Characters that are known agents of disinformation now got their start spreading deadly lies about the MMR vaccines. Lies that continue to this day. The way people lied about disease and immunity 20 years ago sound eerily similar to the things your aunt picked up on Facebook in 2020. I also think we have mostly forgotten how the world was like before vaccines. Like with COVID, the last generation's anti-science grifters took advantage of society's forgetfulness. In many ways, vaccines are a victim of its own success, and we forget how prevalent deadly diseases were in generations past. In many cases, we're barely two generations away from a time when diseases like measles, smallpox, pertussis, and other terrifying diseases would kill a large number of people, especially children. It was normal for a large number of your classmates to not make it to adulthood. Ask any old person especially those from less developed places, and you'll hear the terrifying stories of polio victims, of the sickening sounds of whooping cough, how suddenly all your classmates would be sick of measles, and one or two you would never see again. A study by Volk and Atkinson estimates that 26.9% of infants died before their first year, and almost half before they turned 15. These estimates to be very clear, included children who died for any reasons, including diseases, as well as warm famine. It, but it is still stark to think that of any two children over all of human history, one would not see their 15th birthday. Today, the infant mortality rate is about 2.9% globally. The United States has an infant mortality rate of 6 per 1,000 life births, a rate that is still considered high by the standards of most developed nations. The death of a child is blissfully rare today, at least in most parts of the world. And the reason why we don't live in a world of tragedy and sorrow is largely due to vaccine technology and improvements. 
You may know that vaccines were responsible for eradicating smallpox, a disease that killed about 35% of its victims at least, and was once so prevalent that the disfiguring scars it created amongst its survivors can be seen on archaeological artifacts of people dating back to the ancient Egyptians, a disease well known to have wiped out the population of the Americas when introduced by the Europeans. You may also know that polio was eradicated in many countries thanks to various polio vaccines. The sight of people crippled from the aftermath of the disease or forced to lie in iron lungs all their lives is largely a thing of the past in today's world. But diseases, like the vaccine scientists, are persistent. As of 2022, vaccines have only eradicated two diseases, smallpox and rinderpest, which is a disease that afflicts cattle. Several others, like guinea worm and polio, have cases numbering the dozens per year, but still happen in the deepest reaches of places like Afghanistan where doctors are scarce and supply chains are difficult. Worse, thanks to anti-vaccination misinformation becoming more sophisticated and global, formerly eradicated diseases like measles have resurfaced in countries where they were once thought to be eradicated. And this is why I want to focus on measles first. In a lot of ways, the skepticism around the MMR and measles vaccines laid the groundwork for the modern anti-vaccination movements. Many of the characters pushing disinformation in the COVID-19 pandemic got their start pushing those talking points around the MMR vaccine. Like the coronavirus, measles is a highly contagious airborne disease that kills a small but significant number of the people who fall sick with it especially children. Global vaccination programs have eradicated measles in many countries, but lax vaccination rates have caused resurgences in countries ranging from the United States to Samoa. And the resurgence of measles in many parts of the world in the past 25 years can be blamed directly on the same disinformation agents that make control of COVID-19 today that much more difficult. Measles has been recorded as a distinct disease as early as the 9th century by the legendary Iranian physician Zakaria Razi in his book Al-Jubari wa Al-Hasbah on smallpox and measles. This is recognized by the WHO as the first written account of the illness. Like chickenpox and smallpox, it was ubiquitous and continued to be until the introduction of the vaccines. To quote the CDC in its article about measles, in the decade before 1963, when the vaccine became available, nearly all children got measles by the time they were 15 years of age. It is estimated 3 to 4 million people in the United States were infected each year. Also each year, among reported cases, an estimated 400 to 500 people died, 48,000 were hospitalized, and 1,000 suffered encephalitis, or swelling of the brain, from measles. You might hear that number and think, well that's a very low death rate, it's just like the flu. Or maybe you won't because you hear the same things coming out of the mouths of vaccine skeptics all the time nowadays. Most children recover after a week-long fever and various other mild complications. But a small number of those children get the aforementioned encephalitis, 
swelling of the brain. Many who do die quickly. One of those unfortunate children is Olivia, who is the eldest daughter of famed author Roald Dahl. Here, he writes about her death in 1962 as part of the vaccination campaign pamphlet. I noticed her fingers and her mind were not working together, and she couldn't do anything. Are you feeling alright? I asked her. I feel all sleepy, she said. In an hour, she was unconscious. In 12 hours, she was dead. The measles had turned into a terrible thing called measles encephalitis, and there was nothing the doctors could do to save her. That was 24 years ago in 1962, and even now, if a child with measles happens to develop the same deadly reaction from measles as Olivia did, there would still be nothing the doctors could do to save her. Olivia died at a time just before the vaccines were released. By itself, measles is survivable. But if one develops complications like pneumonia or brain swelling, that mortality rate increases exponentially. Very young children, immunocompromised people, and people with poor health care and sanitary access are particularly vulnerable. Some of those complications, like encephalitis, even if they survive, can result in long-term complications. Public health officials like the CDC knew this. They also knew, by about the late 19th century, measles was incredibly transmissible. Measles is commonly cited to have an R0 or reproductive number of between 12 and 18 meaning on average one person could transmit the disease to between 12 and 18 people on average conditions. Those studies suggest that ideal circumstances could push that number to be far, far higher. To quote an 1890 book titled, What Ails the Baby? Quote, if a child be only taken into a room for a very short time, where another child is suffering from measles, it is almost certain to take it. So the best recourse was to have afflicted children quarantined and hope they heal without severe symptoms. There's a quaint episode of the cartoon Tom and Jerry produced in 1948 that ended with the titular characters covered in characteristic measles spots and forced to quarantine indoors. We know how disrupted it is when in 2020, we need to quarantine and recover from a disease for a week or more and to do it frequently. And with new advances in medicines and virology, it was the right time for men like John Franklin Enders to emerge. John Franklin Enders is often cited as the father of modern vaccines, although he himself would likely reject that title. He is, of course, far from the only person responsible for them, as he often insists, but following his life is helpful in tracking the development of the measles vaccine and many other life-saving medicines developed in his time. Enders was born in Connecticut in 1897, the son of a wealthy banker. Joining the U.S. Army in World War I as a flight instructor and lieutenant. He then graduated from Yale before getting his Ph.D. from Harvard in the biomedical sciences in 1930. Following that, he had a productive career, 
including becoming a civilian consultant to the Secretary of War of the USA during World War II. He then became the head of the research division of the Infectious Diseases of Children's Hospital, Boston, in 1947, where he would stay for the rest of his career. Ender's specialty was in virology, a relatively new but rapidly growing field of which he had many contributions. He helped develop techniques for detection of antibodies to the mumps virus, and then showed the virus could be grown in eggs and tissue culture. A major breakthrough occurred in 1949 on a project he ran with Thomas Huckle Weller and Frederick Chapman Robbins at the Research Division of Infectious Diseases. The three men were credited with growing the poliovirus for the first time in cultured human embryo cells, rather than animal tissue. His success gained the three men the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1954, quote, for their discovery of the ability of poliomyelitis viruses to grow in cultures of various types of tissue. It was an incredible discovery to be sure, one that was recognized by another scientist, Jonas Salk. Salk took that technique that Enders, Weller, and Robbins developed, and long story short, helped develop the polio vaccine in 1954. Today, we know Jonas Salk as the father of the polio vaccine and is rightfully hailed then and now as a pioneering hero for his work. But he was a more controversial figure in the scientific community at the time. I will cover Jonas Salk and the development of the polio vaccine someday, but for now, I will say, when his polio vaccine trial was a success, Salk announced it on the radio. The high visibility of polio as a disease and the national attention and funding brought by many Americans, including the president at the time, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who is a famous polio survivor, made Salk a celebrity. However, Salk was shunned by many of his peers for allegedly not properly crediting other scientists who he worked with and what was achievements he built on, including Enders. This is something that Enders would avoid doing later in life, as we will see. In 1954, the same year that Enders won his Nobel Prize and the polio vaccine was released, there was an outbreak of measles in a school in Massachusetts near the Children's Hospital. So Enders sent another hospital fellow, Thomas C. Peebles, to the school to collect blood and throat samples from the infected schoolboys, including one 11-year-old David Edmonston. Peebles allegedly told each of the boys, Young man, you are standing on the frontiers of science. And for David, that was true. Peebles isolated the measles virus for the first time from the boy's sample and cultivated it, creating the Edmondson strain of attenuated live measles virus, or Edmondson's B, that Enders would use to develop his vaccine. It took years, but a trial vaccine was finally available in 1958, and field testing of that vaccine fell to a Dr. Samuel Katz, he decided to test that vaccine on the students of a school for the developmentally disabled. Like any school with dormitories, there were constant outbreaks of measles there. So according to Katz, they tested 15 children with the consent of their parents and monitored their progression. It worked, and further tests progressed from there. In 1960, the New York Times reported that trial vaccine was given to 1,500 developmentally disabled children at the Willowbrook School on Staten Island, though the reporter used harsher language to describe the children at the time. It was also given to 4,000 children in Nigeria. As a result of the trials, 
The Times in 1961 reported that the vaccine, quote, proved itself 100% effective in preventing measles. It was Dr. Enda's triumph, one of the greatest achievements of medicine, to quote. Of course, Dr. Anders, characteristically, refused so credit. He wrote a letter to the editor saying, quote, To me, it seems most desirable that the collaborative character of these investigations should be understood, not solely for personal reasons, but because much of all modern medical research is conducted this way. Winston B. Vaccine Anders and his fellow biologists developed would be licensed and mass-produced by Merck. A deactivated virus version was also developed by Pfizer that same year, and the number of measles cases began to fall, alongside the prevalence of the other diseases we mentioned. Just before the vaccine was introduced, there were about 400,000 measles cases a year in the United States alone. That number fell dramatically to under 50,000 within five years. It was a dramatic shift, and despite resurgences and later outbreaks, improvements in the measles vaccines would make the disease a distant memory for many communities and nations for decades. A lot of these improvements after the vaccine was licensed can be credited to a Maurice Hilleman and the teams he worked with. Hilleman is a remarkable scientist that doesn't necessarily get as much credit outside the scientific community as he is not part of that first generation of virologists that developed the vaccines. But his work is insanely influential. His work has contributed to the development of vaccines against the Asian flu of 1957, the Hong Kong flu of 1958, mumps, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, meningococcus, streptococcus, among around 40 others. This includes an improved measles vaccine and the MMR vaccine. Hilleman first improved upon the Anders measles vaccine by developing a technique to further weaken the attenuated virus, reducing the need for additives and the risk of side effects. He called it the more attenuated Anders strain or Moraten, because naming creativity was not his strong suit. That vaccine was released in 1968 Five years prior, he had also developed the mumps vaccine after his daughter, Geraldine, came down with the mumps. Again, he named the strain after the sample he obtained for her. And then, in 1967, others had developed the rubella vaccine, so by 1968, all three were approved and in the market as standalone shots. Hilleman was a workaholic. It was normal for him to work continuous 12-hour days for weeks on end, driven in part by his passion to save lives and an uncompromising attitude. He drove people around him insane, but because of his life's work, even today, he continues to save lives. In 1971, he showed that one could combine the vaccines for measles, mumps, and rubella safely into one single shot, creating what is today known as the MMR vaccine. That MMR vaccine, despite the controversy, is still being used today in some form as well as many of the other vaccines he developed in one form or another. I personally have had it, and every year, 8 million more people are alive because of him. Sadly, he lived long enough to see the birth of the modern anti-vaccine movement, 
And as an old man, he watched as a gastroenterologist in England named Andrew Wakefield claim with flimsy evidence that his vaccine caused autism amongst children. Hilleman received death threats over the matter, confusing the old man and causing him a lot of stress. He told his biographer towards the end of his life, Can't we learn from history? Do we really need to sacrifice our children to learn these lessons? Sadly, Maurice Hilleman died in 2005, five years before the paper was attracted. But I don't want to end on a sour note. Instead, I want to again remind you that thanks to scientists like Maurice Hilleman, John Anders, and so many others, we live in a very different world than the one that those men grew up in. We carry their legacy in our blood, and it is our responsibility to continue their efforts, to never again let the world slip back into the dark age. Because while the virus is still out there, even if entire nations eradicate it within their borders, as long as it survives somewhere, the diseases can always come back. For instance, the United States was so successful in vaccinating everyone that measles was declared eradicated within the country by the year 2000. However, eight years later, it came back, and it has never left. While the number of measles cases today can be counted in the hundreds rather than the hundreds of thousands, there is still a very real and devastating toll from each and every outbreak. And in the 21st century, you can trace almost all of these outbreaks to the same network of disinformation and conspiracy, much of it starting with a man named Andrew Wakefield. enough just how important vaccines are to modern life. It turned diseases that were once ubiquitous into something of a distant memory. Measles, polio, smallpox, and many others became rare in the developed world thanks to widespread vaccines. But as of 2022, all these diseases except smallpox still exist. Measles in particular is back in many parts of the world killing an estimated 207,500 people in 2020, according to the UN. The COVID-19 pandemic, the necessary focus on managing the ongoing crisis, as well as the resultant increase in anti-vaccination sentiment, caused measles to hit a 23-year high as more and more missed their vaccination schedules for various reasons. The fates of all vaccination efforts are linked together. They usually follow similar procedures, use the same assets and networks, and are managed under the same bureaucracy. Anti-vaxxers, on the other hand, do not distinguish between vaccine types. The problem with one vaccine is used to smear all of them. A legal or cultural victory against one by anti-science advocates can be used to affect the success of all vaccinations. Remember that next time as we turn our attention to England in the 1990s. As an unethical charlatan prepared an early report in The Lancet about the potential link between the MMR vaccine and suspected autism. While he began as someone who wasn't necessarily anti-vaccine by today's standards, focusing only on one shot in an unethical effort to sell another, 
money and fame will turn Andrew Wakefield's flawed little paper against one vaccine into the cornerstone of an entire industry of falsehoods against vaccines and modern medicine. Sources for this episode can be found in the episode description. For correspondence and corrections, please message me on Twitter at PolyPanemicPod. If I can make this podcast work, I would like to hear from you, your story with dealing with this pandemic or any disease, and if you have any suggestions on future topics you'd like me to look into, I apologize once again for any mistakes, truncations, and pronunciation errors I've made in the preceding episode. As always, if you can, get yourself and everyone you know vaccinated and boosted, wear a mask if you can, and always